When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Felix Flicker to tell us all about his fascinating book published by Simon & Schuster in 2023 titled The Magic of Physics, Uncovering the Fantastical Phenomena in Everyday Life. This book starts from a really interesting premise that if you were to present what today we might take for granted, feats of modern science, like a flashlight in a dark cave. Uh, To someone multiple hundreds of years in the past, this would have seemed like magic. Uh, Dr. Flicker, in his book, takes us through all sorts of things, explaining things today and how they might have seemed magical, and also things that seem still seem pretty magical today, and understanding the physics behind it. Um, So the book is really interesting for tying these things together. And as I think quite a lot of listeners will be fascinated by, the book is written in a very unusual way for an academic, um, which I'm also curious to ask Felix about. So Felix, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about your book. Thanks very much for having me. Before we get into all of those details, though, could you maybe help us take a step back? Tell us a bit about yourself and explain why you decided to write this book. Okay, sure. Um, Well, so uh, I'm a physicist, but specifically I'm a condensed matter physicist. uh, And it's the biggest area in physics. About a third of all physicists work in that area of physics. Um, But nobody's ever heard of the subject. Uh, whereas people have often heard of things like um, string theory or, or, of course, astrophysics or cosmology or gravitational waves. And I thought, OK, why is it? Why is it that the biggest area in physics, this thing that physicists find so exciting, um, why is it that people outside the subject have never heard of it? I mean, even undergraduates often don't hear about it until about their third year or so. Um, and I thought, OK, well, uh, probably the main reason is that there are some really excellent books on those other subjects. Um, things like Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe told everyone about string theory. And I thought, okay, why, why then aren't there books on condensed matter physics? Uh, and I thought, okay, and it wasn't just me thinking this. I sort of asked a lot of people. That was the main step in the research, um, asking other physicists, asking science writers and, and journalists and things. And the answers always kind of fell into two categories. They basically said, well, if you look at the subjects where uh, people do hear about them, things like string theory or or cosmology, there's this kind of inherent magic to them in a sense that doesn't really need explaining. Like when you're learning about the the fundamental building blocks about from which the universe is built, like you are in string theory, there's something kind of, you know, essentially magical about that, learning about that aspect of, of the universe. And, things like cosmology like the pos- the birth and like the possible fates of the universe there's something kind of you know uh, like wonder inspiring uh, to to hear about that as well whereas condensed matter physics it's the study of matter it's the study of the stuff around us and that's not obviously got that sense of magic to it because it's familiar and familiar things are, are not uh, typically thought of as particularly magical and So that was the first reason. And the second reason people tended to suggest, and and I agree with, is that condensed matter physics is inherently quite practical. So all of physics is ultimately practical. If you you take subjects like gravitational waves or even esoteric things like string theory, um, the the techniques we're developing in, like with the mathematics to study those things or the experimental techniques we use to study things such as uh, gravitational waves, those technologies do end up 
um, having an effect on people's day-to-day lives, but typically on quite a long time scale. You know, they're, they're probably the most important effects. You know, the, a famous example would be um, things like uh, mobile phones, laptops coming out of quantum mechanics, for example, quite an esoteric subject. But these things take a long time, whereas condensed matter physics uh, tends to have technological applications on a much shorter time scale. So you might be talking, you know, it could be like a matter of sort of two or three years before uh, an idea can become practical. And that that practicality uh, on a time scale that we can easily comprehend seems to be again at odds with this idea of of magic so when i say magic i think i really mean something like the ability of the world to inspire us it's that thing that you get when you like look at the the stars in the night sky you know they're magical in a way that i don't need to explain but a lump of stuff um like glass or or wood or or metal or what have you these things are not obviously magical in that same way so i thought okay i'm going to set out to try and set the record straight i'll try and explain what the magic is that i see in condensed matter physics and that i think um, other physicists see Um, and so this is where the kind of magical element of the book came about i thought well the practical and the familiar can be magical but they're a kind of specific form of magic and I thought, well, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's the sort of magic that's worked by wizards. And by wizards, I mean people, you know, it could be um, characters in your favorite book, like Harry or Hermione uh, in Hogwarts. You know, they, they don't do, um, uh, they do magic, but they don't do magic on the scale of changing the laws of reality or, or changing the entire universe or or changing the, the fundamental building blocks of reality. Uh, rather, they're doing bits of practical hands-on magic that are useful to the other characters. And I thought, okay, so we do have a sense uh, in which the practical and familiar can be magical. Uh, it, it's just a slightly more subtle form. So I, I set out to write a book to, to make that point. Thank you for giving us a bit of an introduction and explaining what you're aiming to do with the book. I'd love to get into a bit more uh, this wanting to bring back or bring in the magic to your branch of physics and make the everyday more fantastical because uh, one of the ways you do this is the style of the book. This is not a traditional academic book. This is certainly what I, as a social scientist, um, thankfully, I would be a little bit intimidated to read a sort of classic physics book. This is not that. So can you tell us a bit about the style you chose to write in and kind of why? And especially then, what difference did that make to you? Was it easier to write that way? Was it harder? Um, Okay, yeah. So uh, I guess you're referring to the fact that it's got fiction in there, which is a bit unusual. (laughs) Uh, Tell us about the fiction. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, I actually, I tried to write the book a few times over the years for for the same reason I mentioned before, that, uh, you know, it's really uh, strange that the subject doesn't have a a popular science book written about it for people to read. Um, But when I would try over the years, it would would come out kind of inconsistent. Like one week I'd write it and it would be really complex. The next week it would be far too simple and, and I didn't have a consistent sort of style to it. And then... One day, probably about three years ago, um, I had this idea that um, rather than write nonfiction, I would just write some fiction. Uh, and so I wrote this kind of short passage um, about uh, this wizard. Uh, she's called Varian, and she's uh, in this cave, and she's um, kind of clambering through it. And she pulls from her pocket a, a crystal and does some magic that causes this crystal to light up. And... And then I switched to nonfiction and said, well, you knew that bit was uh, was fictional because it was magic, you know, and clearly the person in that was a wizard. Uh, and that thing that she was doing was, was performing magic, because if you could light up a crystal, that would be magic. Uh, and that just seemed much more intuitive. And then I explained that, well, actually, we do that magic all the time because modern lighting uh, uses LEDs, light emitting diodes, and those are nothing but crystals. And the uh, spell we cast to make them light up is just flicking on the light switch and passing an electric current through those crystals. Um, and from there, the whole book just like fell together. Like whenever I went to write it, it came back in exactly the right, the same style consistently. Uh, and it all sort of, uh, that, that was the thing that I needed to get it to work somehow. Uh, so then I, I carried on with that and, and put more fictional bits in there. So I would use a bit of fiction uh, to introduce an idea in a, in a way that anyone could have read it. And again, I was thinking, you know, pe- people like reading about wizards, all sorts of people like reading about them uh, who might not necessarily go and seek out a popular science book. 
and I was hoping that those bits might potentially draw someone in and they might think, okay, uh, say I've read all these uh, Harry Potter books or actually it was um, Earthsea for me by uh, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Those were the books that uh, really got me into that whole thing. And I thought, imagine you've, you've read something like that and you want to be a real wizard. Well, you can either sort of get a, a fake magic wand and there's many of those available for sale in Oxford. There's about eight Harry Potter shops or something. Uh, but, you know, you won't actually do anything with that. The alternative is you could become a condensed matter physicist and you could learn to really manipulate the world around you to, to have some, to, to create some practical positive effect. Uh, and so I, I, I carried on with this idea of using, um, interspersing the nonfiction with bits of fiction just to kind of uh, introduce a topic in a, in a, uh, perhaps easier to get into way before saying, well, here's how those bits of uh, magic can be done in reality. Which is, I admit, as someone who's always been a bit terrified of physics, um, a much more welcoming way in. <laughs> so I think it's probably going to work for a lot of other people. Um, and it's interesting kind of that in some ways it sounds like it was harder to write this way, but also unlocked some things once you had figured it out. Um, yeah, it just seemed more natural. Like I said, it sort of, yeah, things fell together after that. Whereas before I wasn't quite sure what the book was, but then I was sure. Uh, and plus, you know, my, my editors really helped with this as well, of course. they. Uh, I think in, in an earlier draft, it was a lot more, um, uh, it was like a, a bit of dressing almost. It, it, it was necessary for me to write the book, but uh, maybe it could have, um, those bits could have been, it could have been divided up into two books, one one sort of fantasy fiction and one uh, non, uh, a non-fiction book. But actually, my editors were very keen to have them tied more and more together and have the magic kind of woven in at every step. So the analogies were all drawn from that same kind of uh, theme as well, and it all fit together very nicely. So that was really my editor. Yeah, I, I definitely like that they're woven together, um, and I think that came through. So given this kind of trying to explain things in different ways to different people and obviously the example you've you've cited of other parts of physics that have kind of crossed over who do you want to read this and what do you kind of want them to take away from it um i mean honestly i i'd really like to reach people who could uh potentially take up the subject so they might, uh, the people I'd really like to reach are people who might not traditionally think they'd want to go and read a popular science book um, and and who might think, well, I, I don't know about that popular science stuff, but uh, I, I like these, um, these fictional bits. Uh, and then uh, maybe they get inspired from those to, to want to study the, the actual science itself. Uh, so I'm hoping to reach a, an audience of people who, uh, for whatever reason, wouldn't naturally have gone to the popular science section um and in the bookshop uh but might have uh gone to some other section and read some fiction say and, and i'm hoping to reach them and i'm hoping that they might uh be interested to to take up the subject and i think if there's even one person in the world who for whom that's true that they uh, read this book and wouldn't have normally read a popular science book and as a result they end up being a condensed matter physicist then uh, i'll consider that a complete success i'm not sure if my uh, publishers would consider that a complete success <laughs> But I would. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so then let's think about um, kind of how we can think about condensed uh, matter physics in this particular sense. You lay out at the beginning of the book five rules of wizardry and help us understand how they actually might relate a lot more than we think to science and scientists. Can you take us through those rules? Yes, I can. Uh, I came up with those quite late, actually, because I realized I kept saying wizard. <laughs> and I hadn't really worked out what I meant by that in uh, in the original version. Um, I had a quite a, a, a clear image. As I say, I, I think I, I was really inspired myself by uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's books, which I thought were really, really uh, nicely written and, and painted this really nice picture of the world where not much magic is done. They're not, they, they are sort of fantasy and, and fiction, but... Um, it's more about like most of the stuff that happens in those books could be, could happen in our world really. And it's just a, a study of these different um, people and, and, and how they move through the world and nice observations about the world. So I thought I better work out what I mean by wizard. So I sat down and, and, and thought through it. And if, if it's okay, I'll actually just read the, the five rules out that I ended up coming up with. Perfect. So, okay. So I, I said, one, a wizard studies the world. Two, a wizard understands that they are a part of the world they are studying. Three, a wizard's understanding leads them to see hidden patterns and connections that others do not. 
Four, a wizard's knowledge is of a practical, hands-on kind. And five, a wizard can cause changes to the world, but they make such changes sympathetically. See rule two. So I thought that that's pretty much what I mean by, by a wizard. And I was thinking of, um, of, if you think of like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings or or um, Morgan Le Fay or Merlin in Arthurian legend, all these sorts of people. I thought that those are the sorts of characters I had in my mind. But then I thought, well, if we take a look at those rules and we um, delete the word wizard and put scientist in there, I think essentially that those rules are still accurate. And I'll, I'll go through them again. So if we, I'll change wizard for scientist. So one, a scientist studies the world. Two, a scientist understands that they are a part of the world they're studying. And I think that's increasingly important, especially in condensed matter physics. It's, it's no longer sort of studying things in isolation, but we need to start studying the interconnectedness of things. Uh, three, a scientist's understanding leads them to see hidden patterns and connections that others do not. And I think that's certainly true, and especially true for maybe theoretical physicists. That's that's what I am um, seeking. Hidden patterns is the sort of the name of the game. Uh, four, a scientist's knowledge is of a practical hands-on kind. Well, maybe less so for a theoretical physicist, but we certainly work with experimentalists who are very practical. Uh, and five, a scientist can cause changes to the world, but they make such changes sympathetically. See rule two. Uh, and I think that's what we might aim for with modern science, uh, whether or not we achieve it. Uh, so those were the rules of wizardry. And, and I, I felt that once I'd written them down, fortunately, they did all agree with what the rules of uh, being a scientist are as far as I see them anyway. Which is a really interesting point then to continue this idea of looking at one thing from the two perspectives to realize actually maybe physics is not as um, scary to a non-physicist as one might think. Um, and is very much the everyday can be quite magical. So this is obviously really, the next question is quite a tricky one because you answer it multiple times in multiple ways throughout the book. And I am going to ask it to you essentially once. (laughs) But what is matter both to physicists and wizards? Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a good question. And it's a very hard one. Again, actually, um, it's one I didn't realize was the question until very late on, at least the second draft or something. uh, I, I think um, since a lot of your listeners, uh, you know, have written books or want to write books potentially, um, I think that was one of the hardest bits I found in the writing was uh, realizing that when when the book's kind of done, it you can't have like disconnected themes because you know condensed matter physics it's just a subject and so it has various things that you need to study. And I think in an earlier draft it was kind of like here's one thing, now a sudden break, and here's a totally different thing, and here's another thing. Um, but my editors really helped me to see that um, when, a, when a book is written, everything has to flow logically so that the next sentence follows from the previous one all the way through the book. Um, and somehow you can't get to the end of a chapter and say, OK, that's that subject. Here's a brand new subject, because pe- if you ever give a reader a chance to put the book down, then they probably will. So there has to be some reason when they get to the end of one chapter why they need to progress to the next chapter. And they need there needs to be something that keeps them going. Um And on top of all that, you really need the kind of overall structure of a book is that you have uh, like a hook in the first opening line of the book, basically, that the hooks people in, gets them interested. Uh, And that that hook is sort of driving you through the entire book and really doesn't get resolved until the end. Um, And it's as true for a nonfiction book, it turns out, as it is for a a, uh, fiction. Um, So in this book, I guess, uh, by about the, the second or third round of of uh, rewriting, I realized that it, it, it was earlier on missing that that um, uh, structure. And that structure became, well, what is it I'm really trying to address in this book? And I realized the, the question really is, what is matter? It's exactly what you just asked. Um, and it's a very hard question. And once I'd realized that was the question, then I realized that actually every chapter was trying to answer that question in different ways. And I hadn't seen it until I'd thought about that structure. So uh, there's there are nine chapters in the book, and each one um, comes back to this question of what is matter, uh, and it answers it a bit, but it leaves something uh, more that could be said or another way of looking at things. So each time I, I go through and I say, well, this is one way that we look at it in condensed matter physics. But by the end of the chapter, you get the sense that, well, yeah, that's great. Okay, I've understood that, that definition of matter and, and its strengths and weaknesses but then some of the weaknesses you'll say well well how about this that that this case seems to go against that understanding we've just developed and then that's the next chapter you have to go to to see how we try and address that so there isn't really one answer is the is the long and short of it i give about nine answers and there could be many more um 
I'd say the simplest way to to put it, and I think quite one of the earliest uh, uh, ways I, I phrase the answer to the question, what is matter, um, is that it's uh, the whole that is more than the sum of the parts, this Aristotelian idea. Um, that when you get a lot of things together, um, the total can be more than the individual elements. And I think that is the essence to matter and what it is to study condensed matter physics. It's the idea that we can't study these things in isolation. We really need to consider the exactly, as I said, the, the whole being more than the sum of the parts. So a simple example of this could be if you take water, um, water as a liquid is a very familiar uh, state of matter. Um, and you can, say, stick your finger into a pot of water, and that's that's fairly straightforward to do. It's not too difficult. You can go and stick your finger in the ocean if you like, and it's, it's not too hard to do that. But if you take that same water, the same molecules, and you cool them down until they freeze, then it turns into ice. Now, first, you might ask why the same molecules can behave in such different ways. And second, you might notice that if you take a big block of ice, say an iceberg, it's very hard. You can't stick your finger into an iceberg, right? You try and put your finger into an iceberg, and... You can't even push the iceberg, it's too big. And so if you try and push a single molecule of water in an iceberg, every single water molecule in that iceberg responds to your push. So it's true that the iceberg is made of water molecules, just like liquid water is, but it's become more than the individual water molecules. It's it's a whole. It's, it's many, many water molecules that are now behaving in a collective way. And it's true that it's just made of, of atoms, like everything else. Um, there's nothing magical in that sense about it but there i think there is something quite magical about the fact that i push one water molecule and another water molecule on the other side of this huge iceberg responds to that push right and that's that's what i mean about uh, you would be missing something in the description if you just thought of it as individual molecules it's the molecules plus their interactions uh, and the thing they become through those interactions and and that's essentially what we try to study in condensed matter physics it, the, the the name it's often given is emergence it's it's a study of emergent properties that aren't present in any of the individual uh, molecules I'm impressed by that explanation because you did give multiple answers in the book and I was like, wait, how is he going to, how's he going to answer it without being able to go into all of the wonderful detail? Yeah. Um, but you've managed that as well. Um, this idea of kind of emergent or more than the sum of its parts uh, in a lot of ways does sound like a lot of this classic um, magic because of things like the four elements, right? Earth, fire, air, water, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, which I definitely had never thought of in terms of physics, but the idea of kind of each of those having many different qualities all at once, often in fantasy literature, and them having sort of morphic, changeable qualities, uh, sounds a lot like what you were just talking about. So if, well, when in the book you looked at these four elements, um, which of course now we think of as being fantasy, but historically were sort of considered more scientific, how well do they hold up to our current understanding of how the world works and science? Um, I actually think the four elements uh, did a remarkably good job. You know, uh, it's it's true that we no longer think that the world is just made of some combination of earth, air, fire, and water, uh, but those four things are basically the four states of matter that we commonly refer to. So earth is solid, um, air is a gas, uh, water is a liquid, uh, and um, fire is an example of the fourth state of matter, as it's often called, which is a plasma. Um, so I think that's essentially what people are getting at with the four elements. Um, it's remarkable, actually, when you look into the history of the, uh, the idea. Um, we tend to, uh, in, in the UK at least, we tend to ascribe it to the ancient Greeks, but actually it came up all over the world in different places. So it's it was known earlier than that in India. Um, Tibet had a similar idea. All, all around the world, they seem to have this idea. But I think that makes sense because there really are kind of four quite commonly encountered states of matter. And that's really, um, they were basically giving an example, a common example of each of the four states. Um, so... There are things with the uh, idea of the four states that work, that basically most of the stuff you encounter is is one of those four states of matter. There are things that don't work. Um, I think if you think about metals, for example, um, that was always a, a tricky one to fit in. There's a great um, uh, TV series uh, called Avatar, uh, the, the, not the film with, with the blue people, but the um, uh, there was a, a kind of a, a kid's TV show um, uh, which had uh, kind of um, 
it, it was a cartoon and it had these characters where some of them had the ability to like manipulate one of the four elements. Um, uh, and it was, it was, it was a great story anyway, but they, they kind of come up against this in that story as well, that, uh, each of them has one of the elements they can manipulate, but what about metal? That doesn't seem to fit into the categorization very clearly. Um, in that, in, I think in that that uh, TV series, they they end up saying metal is is kind of a purified form of of earth, of a solid, and we kind of we do think of that in the modern description of the four states of matter. Um, metal is still kind of problematic in a similar way. I mean, it is a solid, it's true, but it also conducts electricity, uh, and that's typically a. Um, a characteristic of a plasma. And so actually the way we describe metals uh, in the modern description with the four states of matter is that it's true that the, um, so the atoms in a metal are formed up into some uh, structure. They, they formed a crystal, in fact, all metals are crystals, which is uh, a, a slightly strange fact about them, but it's true. Um, and so the atoms form into this crystal structure, but then each of them uh, gives up some number of electrons uh, to this kind of um, sea of delocalized electrons is how we put it, phrase it. So you end up with these positive ions um, in place of the atoms, and then this sea of electrons floating around between them, which acts as a glue to hold them together. And that's why then when you apply a voltage across a metal, um, you can cause a current to flow through it, because there's this sea of electrons that can float around and effectively carry the current. But the sea of electrons is really a plasma. So um, you might, in the modern description, you might say that metal is kind of a combination of earth and fire, of, of solid and plasma. And that is, that's how we describe it as a, a kind of um, a, a solid framework, but with plasma within it. Um, have, I, have I answered the question there? I feel like I might have gone yes. off on a tangent. <laughs> no, I, I think so. Um, I was also surprised by kind of how well it fits in. Um, which, yeah, you've just, you've taken us through. Obviously, of course, listeners will understand that um, all of, a lot of more detail and a lot more examples are in the book than we're going to get into now. But I think that gives a good sense. Um, we've kind of established, at least I think, some of the foundational sort of arguments and points you make in the book. And so I wanted to ask about some of the kind of maybe smaller pieces of it. I don't know. I Things that I wanted to ask you about having read it. Um, okay. So one of the things that jumped out at me is uh, you call crystals the natural embodiment of magic. This is quite an intriguing statement. Can you tell <laughs> us about it? Um, to me, to my mind, crystals are quite magical. I think I, I mentioned this to my uh, my now wife, my formerly my fiance Dominique. Um, I think she was, uh, I was. I was chatting to her, and I said, "Well, obviously, crystals are magical." And she, she sort of said, well, "What are you? What are you talking about?" Basically, and I realised that actually, that's uh, perhaps it wasn't as uh, you know, I had something going on in my head there that I needed to explain. Um, I just thought, in my sort of uh, imagining of what a wizard's like, they sort of carry a little pouch full of crystals around with them at all times. But I suppose. That's uh, no one's actually <laughs> written that down as a, a law that wizards have to obey. Um, I think there's there is something quite magical about them, though. If you think about it, so what what do I think is magical about a crystal? It's 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 not the kind of uh, crystal healing or any of that sort of thing. It's that um, you just take your favorite crystal, like maybe quartz or something. Like quartz is a classic crystal, right? Um, you know, it looks like a crystal. It's it's got these beautiful flat faces, very sharp angles. Um, you can see through it, and so on. Um, the thing I think is quite magical about something like quartz is that for all that um, symmetry to it, it has these, these, as I say, these flat faces. When you look at those angles, um, they're they're sharp, but they're also very precisely defined. They'll typically be 120 degrees exactly, and they won't be. They will never be like near that. They will be 121 degrees or something. They'll be 120. You might find like a 60 in there. Um, so these very precisely defined angles. Um, and the, the magical thing to my mind about something like quartz is that it just comes out of the ground looking like that. Like when you meet a crystal when you're young, you probably imagine someone's had to cut it into that shape. And sure, some of them have been cut. But actually, if you if you dig one up, uh, a quartz crystal will look much like you're probably imagining it with these flat faces uh, and precisely defined angles and, and and these sharp edges and so on. And I think that's just really magical because, you know, the earth that it's come from is disordered. It's, it's literally dirt, isn't it? But uh, you can find these crystals that seem to have all this like beautiful structure to them and they've come about without any kind of human interference. Um, so how that happens is again a you know something I, I go into 
uh, some detail about in the book. But uh, that sort of thing I find quite magical. And then various crystals have various different kind of uh, things that I refer to in the book as magical powers. You, you may, you know, you can think about them however you like, but they can do remarkable things. So, um, well, to pick a fairly random example, um, quartz again has a property called uh, it's piezoelectric, which means that if you squeeze a quartz crystal, you generate an electrical voltage. So um, if you've ever um, had a lighter, uh, you know, that you, you, you click it, fire comes out. Um, often, uh, they, if you look at them, they have a little spark that jumps. Okay, there's various methods by which a lighter can ignite, but there's, there's like electric lighters. And you squeeze the button and a little spark jumps out and it lights the gas and, and that's how the flame starts. And Actually, if you take the lighter apart, you find that inside there isn't like a battery or anything in there. It's just a little quartz crystal. So you're, you're squeezing um, and you squeeze a quartz crystal. And just from the action of your thumb pressing uh, onto a sort of clicky device that presses it quite hard, um, the, the crystal gets such a large voltage across it that it causes electricity to arc through the air. And that, that lights the gas in the lighter. So again, it's really, it's literally just a crystal that you can get out of the ground, a bit of quartz. There's, it, all you do is cut it into a small shape and nothing more needs to be done to it. And it has this, to my mind, very magical property that you squeeze it and now electricity sort of shoots out through the air. And I think that's pretty cool. You know, that, again, if you were to write a sort of um, fantasy fiction passage in which someone squeezes a crystal, crystal and causes electricity to shoot out, that would sound fairly magical and you think they're probably a wizard. But actually, if you've ever clicked on an electric lighter, you've, you've done the same thing. All right. Your statement sounds less out of nowhere now. I will definitely give you that. I hope your fiance was persuaded as well. Uh, yeah. I, I tend to say these sorts of uh, nonsensical things, so she keeps me uh, <laughs> totally <laughs> out sometimes. Well, I'm in fact going to encourage it um, because assuming that that was one of your favorite um, things that is real that actually seems quite magical, um, could you maybe tell us about one or two other things that might be your favorite bits of magic in physics? Oh, okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's ever-changing, though. well, uh, ever-updating, I mean. Uh, lots of magical stuff's being done all the time. Um, if I might give a, a slightly sideways answer, the thing I'm most excited yeah. about right now is uh, actually math rather than physics, but it's it, it definitely ties into physics. Um, that's the uh, the hat. Have you heard of the hat recently? I'm neither a mathematician nor a physicist, so assume no. Okay. It's, Some it's listeners really might have, but not me. It, it's had a lot of press recently. It's been in most of the uh, um, uh, papers. Uh, uh, it's basically... Um, Someone who wasn't a mathematician, uh, or rather wasn't uh, like an academic mathematician, a guy called Dave Smith from the UK, uh, has discovered a shape uh, which you can draw on a piece of paper. So it's, it's two-dimensional. It's a tile. And this tile fits together with copies of itself so that it creates a pattern which is aperiodic, which means that it doesn't, um, you can't uh, create the entire pattern by taking some part of it and, and shifting it. Um, okay, that sounds a bit complex, but it's actually quite simple. If you think about a tiling like in your bathroom, it might be made of squares, say, right? You might have a square tile, and then you take lots of these square tiles and you stick them into a regular structure, right? So the, the squares all meet along their edges, and then four squares meet at a corner, and so on. Um, and that's what we'd call a periodic tiling, uh, because we can take one of those squares and we can shift it along and it goes over the top of another square. And you can do that to create the entire tiling. So this shape that Dave Smith found um, is a very simple shape. It's remarkably simple, actually. But when you try to um, fit it together with copies of itself, like different, you need to make, make them as tiles um, out of whatever you want, and you try and fit them together, it can fit together in many ways. But when if, if you want to keep the tiling going for a large enough wall, you'll find that the only way to fit it together with copies of itself is in a pattern uh, that is aperiodic. It... it um, uh, it doesn't repeat in, in, in that sense. Uh, and, I, and this is, it, it's hard to explain how remarkable this is really, but um, mathematicians uh, have been looking for this thing for a very long time. Um, there's a famous example by uh, Roger Penrose, where, who invented what's called the Penrose tiling. So this had two different tiles uh, and with some decorations, they, they only fit together in this aperiodic way, but there were two of them. And actually the, the problem of trying to find these things goes back a very long time. Kepler, Johannes Kepler, was working on this uh, in the early 17th century, for example. 
and you can see Kepler's attempt to make this aperiodic tiling. And it was discovered last month, basically, the uh, a preprint went online where they announced the discovery of this uh, aperiodic monotile, and they called it the hat because it looks a bit like a hat. Um, and this is, it's, it's really magical because, you know, I, I'd worked on that problem. I tried to find an aperiodic monotile uh, and I had failed uh, as, as many people who uh, work on these sorts of things had also tried. So it's, it's a kind of maths thing, but it does have applications to physics. And I think a lot of physicists are very excited about it as well. Um, things like the Penrose tiling, the one that had two different tiles. Uh, we've since discovered materials that make these bizarre geometrical patterns that basically match that Penrose tiling. They come about naturally uh, in nature again. And they're actually much like crystals. So if you take, um, to return to the case of the the simple tiling, like a a square tiling on your bathroom, uh, on the wall, say, um, if you placed an atom, uh, or like a ball that's the size of a tile, say, but let's call it an atom, at the centre of each of those tiles, the atoms would then lie in this regular periodic structure again. And it turns out that that's how the atoms lie in any crystal. Um, So I mentioned that metals are crystals, but also like quartz is a crystal. If you look on the atomic scale, you find that the atoms are arranged into this regular periodic structure. But after Penrose came up with his uh, tiling, which was aperiodic, um, we found materials that also do this naturally. And these things were called quasi-crystals rather than crystals. And they've got some really remarkable properties. So this this tiling that's just been discovered, the hat, I suspect the race will be on now to discover uh, a physical system that creates this hat tiling automatically. And I've got some of my own ideas about that, but I'm sure other people will uh, be uh, coming up with some great uh, physical ways in which the hat will appear in nature. So that was um, a great example of one of the features I really appreciated of the book um, and kind of clued me into this idea of hoping that someone picks this up and goes, oh, I didn't think this could be for me, but maybe it can, Um, which is that you highlight the work of physicists, um, not just the famous ones, and perhaps uh, more crucially, not just the dead ones. (laughs) Like you highlight the work of current physicists, um, including making it clear that it's not just um, people from particular race backgrounds or gender backgrounds that can do physics. Um, And you even devote a section of the book to kind of, as you call it, spells that have not been written yet or spells that are in the process of being written, right? Things we haven't quite figured out of which you've just given us a very cool example. Um, Perhaps from the book, is there one or two that you'd recommend the listeners to especially keep an eye on? Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm really glad you picked up on that point, actually, uh, because, yeah, that was... you asked earlier who I was trying to uh, aim the book at, and as I said, it was it was people who might not naturally have have, have gone to the popular science section because you know some some people just aren't interested in science, and that's fair enough. You know, we have our own preferences, but I think it's it well, it's it's abundantly clear that there are um, a lot of people where people where society or, or teachers and so on have kind of put them off it when they might naturally have gone into science. You know, there's there is a huge um, there is an issue with. Uh, um, uh, more men than women studying physics at university, say, um, and and then that that problem gets worse. Like the the higher up you go, so when you go to like master's level, then PhD, then then postdoc, then faculty, the uh, the gender balance gets worse. And and in the more mathematical end of it, like theoretical physics, it's a problem as well. It's it's getting better. Like with time, we these things are getting addressed, but there are systematic problems that uh, that are present and. And it's it, it, there's no one thing that you can point to that's causing this. It's it's a combination of things. But I think one of the things is that um, you know it, it does take some work to uh, to to try to. It's important that we highlight um, cases where uh, scientists. Be, sorry, let, let let me let me rephrase that. It's always tricky for me to to phrase it properly. Um, like. A, a, one of the problems that exists is that kind of historically when people refer to scientific discoveries and so on, they've tended to focus uh, on a certain subset of scientists as a kind of stereotype of a scientist. Uh, and so, you know, I, I basically fit into the stereotype that I was given of a scientist, I think, uh, in my own upbringing. And that just means that when I see um, I, it was very natural for me to think of myself becoming a scientist, right? Because I, I, the depictions of scientists you see on films and TV, they kind of looked a bit like me. They came from something like my background and so on. Um, and I think 
not having that kind of role model can be um, uh, one of the things that could be uh, a bit of a hindrance. So I remember when I was a master's student, actually, um, uh, I was on this course uh, at the Perimeter Institute in, in Canada, the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. And uh, it was a course, there was about 30 of us on this master's course. Uh, and it was, it had a gender balance, actually, it was, it was half and half, which was excellent. Um, and at the start of the course, somebody, uh, one of the lecturers asked uh, why everyone had, had sort of become a physicist, basically. And I remembered, uh, as I remember, it, it was two, two of the women in the class actually said that um, they'd been inspired by uh, the character of Dana Scully from the X-Files, who, you know, if you remember the X-Files, she was a, a, like a brilliant scientist, but also uh, an FBI agent exploring the paranormal. Um, and that stuck with me, the, the fact that there was this, this single character of, uh, of a female scientist had, had inspired two people to become actual scientists. And, and I thought, wow, that's, that's really important. So, um, yeah, I, I think trying to um, address the way scientists are presented is, is one of those issues. And, and of course, there's a huge amount of important work being done uh, by female scientists, by, by scientists you know, from all around the world and so on. Um, and, and so it's not too hard to, to pick examples of, of, uh, of um, scientists from various different backgrounds doing different things. So I, I, I made an effort to do it. Um, I, I could have done a better job, maybe, I, you know, um, to some extent, I, I talk about the people who I've interacted with sometimes, and I realize that, you know, that, that suffers the same biases that, um, uh, that are inherent, you know, at the moment in, in the subject. So, um, uh, I, when I talk about, I, I thought I have had the, uh, good fortune to work with, um, a lot of, uh, really excellent female scientists. And I, I, I picked some of those examples as, uh, as, as really, uh, exciting examples of, of physical things that, uh, that, that have been worked out that I've uh, had the good good fortune to be involved in. I'm, I'm glad you explained that because um, it really did come through in the book and it was very nice to see that getting um, woven in as consistently as the sort of magical and fantastical explanations as well. Um, are there any particular bits of upcoming work that, you know, people in the field are working on that you're like, ooh, because, I mean, now I think everyone's going to go, ooh, next time Hat comes up in the news, I'm going to keep an eye out for that one. Um, are there maybe any other tips of what we could look for in the future that either might not sound like much, but actually are, or might sound like the everyday, but are quite magical? Um, yeah, the, of course. Yeah, there's loads. And no, sorry, I didn't answer the question fully last time, but uh, um yeah, as you say, the, the sort of second half of the book really is uh, is like spells that we haven't finished learning. The, the the idea I tried to get across in the book is that you know uh, one of the other ways in which I think science can be misrepresented sometimes is that people often think of it as kind of like a big book of facts that that some people have access to. Is it maybe it's a big book of facts that's written in a language that a lot of people can't speak? I guess that would be one way to phrase how science is sometimes portrayed. And, and that, of course, is not true at all. It's not a big book of facts. Um, it's, it's a matter of repeatedly questioning what you think you know um, and trying to tease it apart and see if you really knew those things or not. Um, so, yeah, I tried to give some examples of, of spells that we're learning from nature, but we haven't finished learning them yet. So um, some of those are quite high profile. Uh, things like room temperature superconductors, that's something that I, I'm certain we'll find one eventually. Um, in the news quite recently, there's been some discussion as to whether it's been found already. Um, you may have seen some of the controversy to do with that. But that will certainly be a big part of our future, I think, as, as, as a humanity. Um, so a superconductor is a material which uh, conducts electricity with zero resistance. And it's not like a small resistance, it's literally zero. And the importance of this is that um, uh, you could, if you had a superconductor that worked at room temperature under normal conditions, um, you could replace your power lines with this superconductor and, and you would lose no power uh, as you transmit electricity down these lines. Now, that would, a, a huge amount of energy is lost every year because of um, having resistance in lines. I think I worked out, uh, it was something like um, the amount of energy that's lost every year uh, in the United States alone from the resistance in power lines uh, would be enough if you could reclaim it to power the streetlights of Manhattan for a thousand years. So every year, that's how much energy is lost. So we would regain all that. But more importantly, perhaps we'd open up 
the possibility of different technologies. So a kind of a typical example or something you often um, people often ask is why don't you just cover the Sahara in solar panels and then we've got um, you know renewable energy for the, for the whole world potentially. Now the reason you can't do that, well, there's there's sort of sociological reasons you wouldn't do it, and uh, there's kind of environmental reasons because it's not just empty space, but. Um, a physical reason you don't just cover the Sahara and solar panels is that uh, if you tried to transmit the energy that you uh, collected that way around the world, you would lose um, you would lose it over any you know within a fairly small distance. You've lost all the power you uh, tried to send down the lines because of resistance. So if you had power lines made of superconductors, that wouldn't happen. You could send it as far as you liked around the world, and you would lose none along the way, and it would it would arrive wherever you wanted to go. So that's potentially enabling a wider adoption of of renewable energy sources. Um, but the problem is that at the moment, superconductors only exist at very low temperatures, and it would cost more energy to cool them down than it would you would gain from uh, not losing the um, not losing any of the energy along the way. So if we had a room temperature superconductor, it would get around that problem because you just lay it down as a power line and and, and off you go. And actually, it's not that far-fetched. Uh, there are already several places in the world that use superconductors for power lines. Uh, so I think Essen in Germany uses it. They bury them underground and they do cool them. They use liquid nitrogen to cool them. And it turns out that in in, in the particular places that it's being used, it's, it's uh, energy efficient. It's better than not using them. Um, so this is a technology that's being developed right now, and it's starting to come in around the world, uh, and it's only going to become more prominent. And I think uh, maybe before the end of our lifetimes, we'll either have a room temperature superconductor or we'll have a much more practical um, uh, uh, use of superconductors. And I think they'll be uh, talked about by uh, people on the street, whereas now they're a bit more of a theoretical, well, they're, they're, um, they're preserve of condensed matter physicists for the time being. That's a great example. Um, I was sort of hoping that one would come up because it's quite an interesting one um, in the book. So thank you for taking us through uh, sort of some of the people we can look to in the future and some of the um, spells we've not written yet or spells we've not learned yet. Um, what are you going to be working on in the future? Is there any project, book, article, etc. that you've got your eye on now that this one's done? Um. Well, research-wise, there's lots of stuff. I'm going to be working on the hat, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I'm, uh, I'm organising a, uh, um, a celebration of the hat in, in Oxford on the 20th and 21st of July. So I, I'll mention it for your listeners. Um, it's it's open to the public. Uh, so there'll be lots of talks. Roger Penrose is giving a talk about it and so on, um, and, and the creators of it. So I'm going to be looking into the hat, both from a maths point of view and a physics point of view. Um uh, is one of the things I'll be quite excited about. Um, Book-wise, I've got some ideas, but uh, I've, they're sort of in the planning stage, and I'm speaking to my agent and and up some ideas. There. Well, that's very exciting. Um, thank you for mentioning the details of the conference. I'm sure people can find it if um, they go have a look for it. Um, just to round off, I suppose, as my final question, this book, I think, presents a lot of fascinating surprises. Um, I imagine there's going to be physicists who have not really thought about Ursula K. Le Guin in the context of their work before. Um, certainly people who have not thought physics were for them or only thought about kind of the astrophysics side of them. Um, and there's a lot, I think, that, yeah, will spark things in people's brains. In the process of writing or researching this, was there anything in particular that surprised you? Yeah, I think so. There were quite a few things I came across where uh, I had no idea, actually. And, and often you, you think, oh, I, I should mention this bit of physics, uh, and, or, or I find this bit of physics interesting. But then you go and look into the details to see, is there some historical context for this? Or um, is there uh, some neat application I can mention? And often I, you know, there's some really cool bits of uh, some cool applications, some cool historical uh, nuggets that I discovered. I guess most of them have uh, made it into the book in one way or another. <laughs> Is um, there a particular example that springs to mind? Um, let me have a think. And, and by think, I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit on the spot, so I'll just do a quick scan through my own book. Shall I? I mean, I can, what I can think of is, um, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you an example which I haven't just found in the book, I, but. It's the one that's come first to mind, so maybe it's uh, the best answer I can give. It's not really uh, a physical application. It was more um, uh, just a, a neat magic trick, I suppose. But it was about balancing eggs. Um, so 
this was in the um well okay so the section of the book is is really one of the more complicated bits um and it's this idea of spontaneous symmetry breaking as a very uh complicated idea and i, I really wasn't sure if i could say anything that the that would explain it neatly. It, it was something that came up of, about 10 years ago, actually, because it's um, involved in the description of the Higgs boson, which you may recall was discovered in 2012. Uh, and that was big news for, for a bit back then. Um, so people were trying to explain spontaneous symmetry breaking back then. And I thought, well, the simplest example of the spontaneous symmetry breaking is you can take something like an egg and you can try and balance it on its tip. Um, now, if the egg is perfectly symmetrical, um, then in principle, the egg would balance on its tip, right? But of course, no egg really balances on its tip um, because no egg is perfectly symmetrical or there's like a little gust of wind or the table's not perfectly symmetrical and so on. Or the, or the table's not completely flat, sorry. Um, so realistically, an egg is always going to roll over and it's going to pick essentially a random direction to roll in. Uh, and that's all the, the mystery really of spontaneous symmetry breaking. You, you set up this problem where you say, okay, I'm going to assume a perfectly symmetrical egg. And then I put it down and then weirdly, the egg chooses one direction to, to fall over in. It doesn't fall over in all the directions at the same time. Um, but that's not really that mysterious because, you know, it, it wasn't really perfectly symmetrical. That was a, 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 an oversimplification basically. Um, but in, in talking about this, I, I started thinking about eggs falling over. Uh, and I somehow came across the idea that um, a lot of people believe that uh, it it's only possible to balance an egg on its tip at certain times of year because it's got something to do with the position of the moon or the sun or the stars or something. And it, it's not true. You can... Um, it's not true that you can only balance it at certain times of year. It is just about possible to balance an egg if you're very careful, I think. But anyway, there are these egg balancing contests that happen all around the world. Um, and they tend to happen like at spring or something. It depends what your myth of egg balancing is. Um, actually, the so one of the things I discovered was that um, uh, a scientist who I'd already mentioned in the book... Um, uh, a Japanese scientist uh, not, not only had done this stuff that I talked about earlier on, in fact, he, he was someone who works a lot on snowflakes, which of course has a lot of symmetry and uh, and they, they came into that discussion of, of symmetry and, and how it breaks. Uh, but it turned out that he'd actually kind of gone out of his way to explain exactly how it is possible to balance an egg and to disprove the, the people um, who were running these egg balancing contests. Uh, but I guess either he pointed this out or, you know, I think he did. So he pointed out that if you take anything, strictly anything that balances, balances on three points. So when you try and balance your egg, it's not really balancing on, on like the, the sort of infinitely small tip of the egg. It's really balancing on, on three points of its shell. And so um, he said an easy way to do this, to balance an egg, or if you want to do a sort of magic trick with it, um, is you, you get your egg and you can sprinkle like some salt on the table, say, uh, and, and salt, there'll be little tiny salt grains on the table. They can be very small. And now you try and balance your egg, and you'll find it's actually very easy to balance the egg on its tip on some very, a very fine dusting of salt on a table because it provides the three points of contact. The egg will, will find three of these bits of salt to, to sit on, and, it, and it'll balance nicely. And then you can blow away the rest of the salt so that to any onlooker who, who turns up, it seems like you've just perfectly balanced an egg on the table. So you can use it as a, a method of... Um, making some money in a wager in a in a pub or a tavern if you like you can you can get other people to try and balance an egg until they're convinced it's impossible and then you know, secretly while they weren't looking you've you sprinkle a little bit of salt on the table which they it can be small enough they won't notice it and you'll find it quite easy to balance your egg so that was one of the bits of uh, <laughs> magic uh, linking to physics i discovered myself when writing the book well, that's quite a fun note to end on, and I think goes very well with the title of the book, again called The Magic of Physics, Uncovering the Fantastical Phenomena in Everyday Life. Felix, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun.